Hello, and welcome back to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. This is your host, Nicolette Richet, and I'm here to invite you to listen to this final episode of a nine-part podcast series that was specific to my PhD research that I did at, through the Doctor of so Social Sciences program at Royal Roads University. I am very honored to welcome this next guest, as I have been to welcome all the previous eight guests who participated as participants in this research and were willing to share their knowledge and expertise with me, with my committee, and with the rest of the world. So for me, colonization is really the intervention of living in peace and harmony in our own territory and so just about all of the modern life really depends on disturbing like the water and disturbing the habitat of all of the animals and so um, speaking a different language that doesn't connect our history to our people um, yeah. And yeah. So that that's what it means to me. Now, Alison Pascal is an Indigenous community leader, educator, and advocate who grew up in Mount Curry, British Columbia, Canada. As a member of the Squamish Nation and the Lillooet Nation, she is committed to advancing the rights and interests of Indigenous peoples in her community and beyond. Allison is passionate about language revitalization, land stewardship, and cultural preservation, and she has worked extensively in these areas throughout her career. As the curator of the Squamish Lillooet Cultural Center in Whistler, which is a beautiful museum, it's a beautiful center, I encourage anyone and any, everyone listening to this show, please get to Whistler, British Columbia, Canada, and visit this this. I, I, it's breathtaking. The knowledge that you will receive and experience at the museum is beyond any other museum that I've seen in the world. The exhibits are phenomenal. They are moving. They make you cry. The people who run the center are incredible. They employ and train the individuals and members of the Squamish and Lillooet Nation. And so they work there, they're able to share their beautiful stories. Um, this is truly a place that is doing everything right or as best as they can when it comes to preserving and honoring Indigenous cultures. Now, Allison, um, as the curator of the center, she developed an amazing exhibit called the Ancient Medicines Exhibit. And I really want to acknowledge that Allison did over two years of research to be able to build that exhibit. It was very moving for her. When I went to the museum, she was speaking about it to a group of students that came from Switzerland to learn about ancient medicines, to be at the center. And it was moving. People were crying. And Allison as well went through her own grief in learning about the atrocities that were committed as a result of colonization and how food was used as a weapon. And when I saw Allison sharing this information, when I saw her, um, the, the heart that went into that, but also recognizing the, 
the trauma that results as a um, from learning about the atrocities committed at the hands of colonizers and from the colonial oppression, from the way that food was taken away from people and replaced with something that we can't even call food, the white food, the white flour, the white rice, the white sugar, um, you know, not the nutrient dense food that indigenous peoples all over the world were able to access through gathering, through hunting, through growing food. Um, all of that was taken away from them. And so it was very moving for me to see. One of the things we are trying to do, if you are anybody who is connected to a university out there, I believe that Allison deserves an honorary PhD for the work she did putting together that exhibit. Because I've spent seven years researching this topic, and Allison has dedicated her life to researching these topics. And, um, and I don't know if she has the desire to go and, you know, spend the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it takes, you know, over the years getting a PhD, but she is definitely somebody who's deserving of an honorary PhD. So we are doing our work to reach out to universities to recognize this incredible human being, her expertise, her knowledge, her wisdom, her research all needs to be recognized. And I'm really excited to be able to bring Allison's knowledge and love and passion and care to you so that you can learn directly through her. So in addition to being the curator at the Squamish Lillooet Cultural Center, she also developed another exhibit after working diligently with other First Nations in BC to develop the culture at the center exhibit, which is all about honoring Indigenous culture, history, and language exhibit. Now, Allison's leadership and advocacy work has earned her numerous accolades, including the Order of British Columbia and the Inspire Award. She has also served on a number of boards and committees related to Indigenous issues, including the First Peoples Cultural Council and the Solo Research and Resource Management Center. And through her tireless work and dedication, Allison has become one of the Canada's most respected and influential voices in her community and beyond. So without further ado, let's welcome our final participant in this doctoral research, Alison Pascal. And please, you know what to do, my friends, share these interviews with others so others may learn. And please write to us at nicolette at richerhealth.ca and share your comments, your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. I would love to hear about how these interviews moved you, if they were, if it was new information, um, if your hearts are burst wide open and your minds are burst wide, wide open and you want to share that with us. Um, and potentially if this also brought up any, you know, any information that reawakens potential trauma within yourself as well, please reach out to us. We would love to speak with you about that. And collectively, we can work to support each other and move through this so we can collectively start working to heal all of the, um, all of the, I'll call it damage that was done at the hands of, um, colonialism over the last 550 years. This is something we must address in order to heal, to heal ourselves, to heal our relationships with nature, to heal our relationships with the land and with each other. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to this nine part series and let's dive in. Mm -hmm. 
and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. Today's interview is very, very special to me uh, because I am interviewing the wonderful Alison Pascal. And today she is here to share with us all of the wisdom, the knowledge, the skills, uh, the life stories that she has acquired um, in her experience being a beautiful human on this planet, um, being uh, an individual who's done extensive research into um, into ancient medicine, into food as medicine, and into so much more through her work at the Squamish Lillooet Cultural Center. Welcome, Allison, to our podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me. It's really nice to see you again. Really nice to see you again, too. So, Allison, can you please tell us what beautiful unceded territories and lands that you are from? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I'll just introduce myself a little bit in my own language. Thank you. Uh, Allison. Um, in Squatchicha. Uh, so hello and good morning, everybody. My name is Mahalikza, and I'm from the Lutwat Nation, which is part of the Shtlatlam Nation, and we're people of the land, and my English name is Allison. Um, so I'm here at home on the unceded territory of the Lutwat Nation, and I'm the curator at the Squamish Lewat Cultural Center, uh, which shares the story of both the Squahotmish Ochomeoch and the Lewat Wool in the territory where our two nations meet. Thank you very much for that beautiful introduction. I wish that, you know, when we met people, that was, you know, how we all introduced ourselves is by acknowledging, you know, the lands where we are from. Uh, our ancestors. And so I want to take a moment here as well to also say that I am sitting here doing this beautiful interview with you on the unsurrendered and unceded territories of the Lilouat Nation and the Squamish uh, peoples as well. My own ancestry goes back to Malawi. I'm from a tiny village called Chiridzulu in Malawi, Africa. So I'm indigenous to those lands, but I came here when I was four years old uh, to Canada, to British Columbia, um, and slowly made my way north from Mission and Maple Ridge to Coquitlam and Burnaby and all the way up through North Vancouver, um, Squamish, Whistler, and now in Pemberton. Um, all of those names that I said are the the English names. They are not the ancestral names of these lands that we are on, but it is really a beautiful honor to be here with you today. So the topic of my research in this interview is our ninth interview in a series of 12 interviews with uh, 12 different participants and guests who are sharing their thoughts on not just the barriers, even though that's the title of my research is what are the barriers that BIPOC communities face in assessing the quality of foods that are capable of reversing lifestyle chronic diseases. But we're also looking at the opportunities as well. One participant said, it's good to identify the barriers so we know where we're at, but we also need to identify the opportunities. And currently in our medical system, 
our Canadian government states that, you know, the reason why diabetes rates, heart disease rates, suicide rates are sometimes four to 10 times higher amongst BIPOC peoples, it's because of obesity. It's because of alcoholism. It's because of lack of exercise, but those are not the real root true causes behind these epidemic rates of chronic lifestyle conditions that we are seeing. At one point, they tried to blame it on um, the thrifty gene to say that, well, you know, people of color have a thrifty gene that is malfunctioning and causing all of these rates of obesity and diabetes. But Allison, you and I know that that is, you know, that is really just a cover up to so much more. And so when I ask you that question, and you'll be able to take it from here, what are all the things that arise from you when I talk about the barriers that exist that prevent uh, people of color in our country from being, and not just our country, but all over the world, from being healthy like they once were prior to the 1940s, where diabetes rates almost didn't exist amongst Indigenous communities? Mm. Well, first thing, it really makes me upset to hear government rationale of why um, our, we're experiencing the number of kind of like genetic, kind of like chronic long-term diseases um, that you were talking about because, and some of the reasons that they were giving because um, of all of the government interventions into Indigenous peoples' lifestyle. Like they purposely um, changed their diet, changed their language, changed their um, housing, and just about everything that Indigenous or we as Lutwat Nation people did to connect with our land was everything that really kept us really healthy and you know in tune with nature so that we could really thrive in our territory and when the Canadian government came in and designed or chose to utilize the Indian residential school system like it wasn't just an experiment for them. They researched it. Um, they went to look at the results in uh, the United States of America and they talked to um, the government or school officials who had been running those programs and they decided it was going to be the Canadian government's best course of action to intervene in Indigenous people's life, lives so that they could separate us from our territory. And so when we're talking about like, why do we have all of these chronic illnesses um, and they're stemming from, you know, drugs and alcohol and all of like poor food management, it wasn't an accident, it was a deliberate choice and, you know, directing us into 
this lifestyle that we have now, it's kind of like the effects of trauma. Um, what the government is talking about is survival methods or coping methods from the traumatic experiences um, experienced by those who went to residential school. Well, it's not even just by those who went to residential school. It was mm -hmm. everybody that lived during the time of residential school because um, the parents, the grandparents, the children who were sent to school and the children who were kept home, it was the whole community that was affected when the government took the children out of the community. It was kind of like I don't know. I always think of it as when they show zombie apocalypse movies or apocalypse movies where you have people walking around and it's really quiet um, because just experiencing having, you know, kids move out of the home and the home being so full of life and just like mm -hmm. laughter and, you know, energy. Um, after they're gone, it's just like really quiet, like eerie sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we can all relate to is, mm -hmm. you know, especially if anybody is a mother or father, mm -hmm. you know, to have that empty nest syndrome, they call it, you know, mm -hmm. where you just feel lost, right? When you've had these children in your life for 18, 20, 22 years, and then they're just gone. But mm -hmm. in this case, um, the children were taken when they were very young as well. And, you know, they, they're not, they can't stand on their own two feet just yet, you know, and to know that those children are so vulnerable as well. They haven't learned the life skills. They haven't learned to build a strong, um, you know, a resilient emotional system or, you know, physical health system or anything. And they've just been taken away and then all of their, um, their community, their knowledge, like you said, their language, their food, their access to the land relationship to the land, all of that is just gone. So Allison, if you could share with us because, um, and with our audience, because we're going to have an audience from all over the world listening to this and many people, they have no idea actually, and I've, and they don't know what colonization is. Could you just speak to that um, in your words? What is colonization so that people understand exactly what you're talking about, what we're talking about here? Okay. Um, well, from my experience here, it was colonization was the introduction of Europe immigrants into Indigenous people's land. Uh, so across Canada, um, European people kind of, were kind of looking for a route, a quicker route into India to do a lot of trading. Um, I don't exactly remember the history books that well, but I know that when Christopher Columbus landed in America, he was looking for 
a faster route to India. And so when he came across the first indigenous people, um, he started to call them Indians because he was trying to go to India. And so when they landed and they started to really explore the continent, um, they found a lot of really valuable resources like the different animals for the furs and the salmon and the cod. And then now I guess we're looking more into clean water and oil and things like that. Um, so for us, it's the settlement of immigrants into our territory that really change the rhythm of life here. Uh, so where we, we as the Wet Nation lived in harmony with the land and we respected, um, and really it's a part of our community mandate or our responsibility as humans living in this territory to care for all of the living beings and the land so that everybody kind of has a healthy population and the lifestyle is healthy for all of the beings. Uh, for, so for me, colonization is really the intervention of living in peace and harmony in our own territory. And so just about all of the modern life really depends on disturbing like the water and disturbing the habitat of all of the animals. And so um, speaking a different language that doesn't connect our history to our people. Um, yeah, and yeah. So that, that's what it means to me. Thank you for sharing that, um, because it is a very, very rich history, and it's an important history that people, it's so important that people understand, people of all color, shapes, sizes in this world understand, and that it also didn't, didn't just happen in Canada. This happened in New Zealand, it happened in Australia, it happened in Africa, it happened all over the world. Um, now, you had a couple questions that I have for you is you had mentioned trauma and can you speak a little bit to that because i know for myself when i first started teaching food as medicine 15 years ago to my clients uh, who had diabetes and heart disease and um, mental health conditions a lot of anxiety and panic attacks and depression um, autoimmune disorders chronic inflammation and arthritis um, and I was teaching food as medicine and they're able to reverse these diseases, um, these, and, and, and I'll say dis hyphen eases. So dis eases in the body. And they were also surprised. And I remember learning about this for the first time. I was so surprised that food had the power to reverse these chronic lifestyle conditions. And so I've been doing this for 15 years now, but when I started doing this, I really was only looking at the physical, you know, relationship between food and the body. That was it. I was like, food is the answer. Food is the answer. Food is the answer. Mm -hmm. Then as I started to see, and in my research, see that 
uh, people of color had much higher rates of chronic diseases than non-Indigenous peoples and non and people and, and people who were white really European ancestry um I started to get very curious about that you know and then that took me down the path of discovering um you know really the relationship between colonization in these conditions and that was something that was not being addressed really in the literature. People have written books about it. You know, there's been beautiful stories um, written um, and, and a lot of research done, but I, it's not taken up yet by, I would say, mainstream um, mainstream science and mainstream, in our governments. They were creating these, um, these policies and creating government programs and education programs. But the part that landed on me on the most was um, understanding the intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. as a result of colonization, as a result of the residential schools. Can you speak to that? Uh, that and I know you've done extensive research um, on how food was used as a weapon. Um, you put together the ancient medicines exhibit at the Squamish Lillooet Culture Center, which was I think it needs to be a traveling exhibit, um, but again, uh, perhaps every community perhaps needs to create their own and tell the story from their own uh, ancestors' um, history in that community, in that region, in that part of the world. Um, but yes, if you could speak to that trauma um, and that relationship mm -hmm. to chronic disease, that would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess I'll really start with like, the relationship between Indigenous people and the Canadian government at first was kind of like on an equal level. Um, when immigrants came to Canada, the harsh winters were really difficult on them. And so a lot of the families were unable well, because they were new to the country and it's so different from their home country and, you know, starting a farm uh, sometimes takes a long time to get um, all of the food established and your harvest season is just really so short. You have to have a lot of experience to know when to plant in the spring <clears throat> so that you can get a couple of crops that would last you through the winter. So originally a lot of the immigrant families were starving and freezing and were at the risk of not surviving their first winters in Canada. Um, so indigenous people really, um, as I was saying, we have a responsibility to care for all of the living beings in our territory. And it's a part of our nature when you see somebody struggling and um, that if you can help them that you would go and help them. And so the communities went and helped these immigrant families and ensured they survived the first winter, but also shared with them the knowledge to be able to gather the food that they needed and the resources that they needed to survive continue to survive and thrive in this territory. And Canada really is, you know, was a British colony because the indigenous people um, 
in the wars, in the early wars in the 1800s, um, sided with the British. And so when the country was being fought over, it was because the Indigenous people sided with the British that we mm -hmm. ended up as a British colony, because I believe the French were here um, in maybe the Spanish. Again, you know, even though I've read about it, it just all that fine information or the details kind of drop out of my head. So when we're talking about how we ended up with intergenerational trauma, um, you know, the value of the land to immigrants at the time is more as a resource and more as a commodity that could be purchased and sold uh, for their own personal gain. But we, as Lutwat Nation, when I, was sa I said in my introduction, uh, I'm Ukwamu, uh, that means we're people of the land. And so in today's culture or in, yeah, today's culture, everybody talks about ownership, um, ownership of this and ownership of the, that. And they also apply that to the land where our view is a lot different. Like we believe to be a part of the land and the land is a part of us. So it's kind of like we're family and we're so interconnected, like we would never leave family and we would never ignore them. And so that's how we view the land. Um, and so when the British were trying to increase their numbers here so that they could have a healthy population to defend this as one of their colonies, um, they really wanted to separate Indigenous people from the land. Like, even though we, we have a giving nature and we shared with them and we taught them at some point, you know, everybody is noticing that they're taking more and more and more. And that sort of view is really foreign to us. And so it was just like, okay, we gave them a plot to live on and that's not enough. And it's looking like it's never gonna be enough. And we noticed, you know, they're starting to lie and go back on their word. Um, and so when I was talking about how the government at that time was researching methods to intervene in Indigenous people's lifestyles, they really landed on separating um, children from the families because if the children don't speak the language and if the children don't grow up on the land, <clears throat> they're hoping that they won't have such a strong connection that they can drive them to living a more European lifestyle. Um, and then they can take all of the land and all of the resources uh, with little to no pushback from Indigenous people. So they came up with the idea of starting the um, Canadian Indian residential school system. Um, 
eventually in the late 1800s, it was mandatory for all indigenous children from approximately the ages of six to 16 um, to attend residential school system. Uh, at the beginning, indigenous people were for their children, like they supported their children going to school when they thought they would get a full education. Like, so the intent was for Indigenous children to learn how to speak with the immigrants and understand how to do business with them. Um, and the promises that were made to Indigenous people was that they would learn all of these skills um, so that they could kind of like engage and work with the immigrants. And so what really happened was the children were used as manual labor. Um, and a lot of the focus was like on manual labor and religious education. And like people were graduating and I would use air quotes, graduating or leaving school um, with like very little reading or writing or arithmetic, like all of those academic areas uh, were not being fulfilled because really when they had the children at the schools, they're like, okay, we're going to make them... Um, understand and appreciate and love the church which mm -hmm. you know, really didn't happen mm. um, but really yeah they used children as manual labor because the government couldn't afford to run the schools um, and which kind of leads us well kind of leads us to how the chronic health um, diseases that Indigenous people face today. Um, so when the, the Truth and Reconciliation um, projects were undergo, like after Indigenous people sued Canada for the everything that happened at residential school, um, a part of the lawsuit um, really mandated the government to learn um, in study kind of how they could move forward with reconciliation. And a part of that was going to interview um, survivors of the schools. So they went to across Canada and talked to as many students that they could and as many students that were willing to share their stories. And one of the key themes was how they just really remember starving every day, mm -hmm. like going 
a nice home where they had really good and nutritious food um, made with love for them to go into this place where every day they were there, they were starving. Like every day they were looking at ways to get more food and protect and make sure that their younger um, students, you know, could get enough food. Um, so there's a lot of, like, as I was talking, the kids were expected to do manual labor. A lot of the girls worked in the kitchens, and so they would pocket, like, as much food as they could without the nuns or the priests noticing um, and share that with each other. Mm. Um, they A lot of the schools also had, like, farms, so gardens, orchards, uh, cattle, chickens, things like that, where they could um, produce food uh, themselves. And the kids worked in those areas. And so they knew there was food available and they knew what they harvested, but what they harvested didn't make it to the table. And so the kids that were in the kitchens uh, had to make the food for all of the students um, and make food for the priest and the nuns. And so what was served was completely different. Like the priest and the nuns got, you know, meat and potatoes and vegetables and the full meals where the students really got scraps or all of the food today, like that you would feed to the animals uh, so that they were living um, often because they were so young they also didn't have the ability to properly cook like they physically weren't strong enough to uh, do all of the heavy lifting and hard work that it takes to work in in a large size kitchen feeding you know really large size groups um, and so as a part of my research for ancient medicines, I was really, I really was naive when I went into the research process. Like my focus was on learning more about the traditional food <clears throat> and its benefits to Indigenous people. Like we, I grew up with the garden and orchard and, you know, my family would just feed me all of this stuff and not really tell me why they were feeding it to me. Like we went out fishing and trading for deer meat and all of that. And so when I started to work at the cultural center and we started to get into expanding our guided tours um, and looking at all of the different plants that were on our property, it turned out that we had some really, really beneficial plants. And so the whole idea came from studying those and learning more about them and kind of how could we share all of that knowledge with everybody because one of the plants we have on the property is red flowering currant. And if you gather 
the flowers and some of the younger leaves and dry it out and make it as a tea, it's really good for, I guess, kind of cleaning the blood, but more so cleaning the blood so that you, it would help you process some of the sugars because mm -hmm. we're prone to diabetes. And so if we could like say mix red flower and currant with some stinging nettle that's really good for iron and some raspberries and raspberry leaves that's really good for vitamin C. It really leaves you with this tea that is tasty but also kind of like beneficial to you to help preventing in getting sick and beneficial for those that may have diabetes to help them not be reliant so much on insulin and injecting mm -hmm. that uh, Indigenous people are really prone to type 2 diabetes because of diet choices that drinking that would kind of like help with that and help to keep your blood sugars really healthy and manageable, I guess. Um, and so, you know, I was researching a lot of the different harvesting practices and different plants that are in their territory. And then I was sitting there, you know, writing in the writing phase. And then I was like, okay, but so if we have all of this really great food and it's really accessible and people in our nation are really happy to share their knowledge of how to get, <clears throat> how to gather it and how to process it so that we could eat it. Why, why, why did we stop? Like, why are we um, eating spam or corned mm -hmm. beef? bologna why are we eating rice and soy sauce all the time and it really reflects the diet that was at the residential school um, and it was really because of that you know I think there was five generations of um, children that were sent to school so it's five generations of people that are learning to depend on this sort of diet to continue living. And in my research, I found the work of this guy, Dr. Ian, oh, I can't even remember his name right now, uh, but he did this CBC podcast talking about um, how residential school how the diet was kind of changed and how children, like with the Truth and Reconciliation Report, children are talking about this diet that was very similar um, in, across the country. And when he, when he studied it, he found that consistently um, indigenous children were like under the bar like of calories mm -hmm. that 
kids, growing kids need. Um, so they were pretty much starving. Um, yeah, so he's done, he's done a lot of work. Like he's done a lot of work studying how the diet at residential school really impacted um, indigenous people for future generations. And so when I read his work and saw how, you know, it's like five or six generations of indigenous people are starving. And so I went to research um, the long-term effects of famine on children and, oh God, so the ancient medicines was supposed to be like, I went in thinking it was gonna be easy. We can do research in the winter and open the exhibit in the fall. But then when I found this information of what happens, um, the long-term effects of famine, really it, when children, um, start to get enough food, their bodies, because indigenous people were required to go to residential school from six to 16, and that's all of their formative years. So that's when you need to be nourished like the most because kind of like the nourishment helps you grow and helps you get to be as strong as possible because, you know, we all, we know that when the life cycle is kind of like you're as strong as possible and, and then you start to degenerate, like your muscle gets less and everything starts slowing down in the body. But when indigenous people were starving all of their formative years, it really programs our bodies to react poorly to insulin or we don't produce enough insulin. And so that when we start having enough food that it kicks off a cycle that really affects our pituitary gland. Mm -hmm. And so that leads to heart disease um, and all of this and kind of just like it's this really worsening cycle within our body that can't be undone. So they've set the path for all of these chronic illnesses that are also genetic. So even though, you know, that we have first generations that didn't go to residential school, you're still inheriting the genes and the chronic diseases from your parents um, that, you know, I don't even know because this idea of using food as weapons is gone on through like in China, in Germany, in Russia, in Africa, in Canada. Um, all of these wars are still so new that we haven't seen or we haven't been alive long enough to see, okay, can we reprogram our bodies um, to kind of like not have these chronic diseases? So we don't even know yet if we can change the path of our 
of our health system. Um, yeah, so. And that's, um, that was the part that moved me the most when I went to the ancient medicines exhibit and you were, you know, conducting the tour uh, for several students from, I believe it was a group from Switzerland um, at the time. And, and I was there with the person coordinating that tour, um, Dr. Brian White. And when I, when I heard your story, because when I first thought about ancient medicines, my thought was that the exhibit would be on, for example, like you said, um, the, you know, the actual medicines in the forest, like, you know, you'd need to know what the herbs are and how they treat like either lower blood pressure or help with insulin management or, you know, so I was thinking that because that's often what we hear um, as, as a non-Indigenous person to Canada, we hear plant medicines and we either think psychedelics or we think um, you know, like medicine, medicines, but your exhibit was very different because um, it, it did talk about that a little bit, but what it actually spoke about was the food, right? Like the actual day-to-day -day food that you eat three times a day that nourishes our body. The, you know, like, and when we think about food as medicine, because that's what I teach, I teach people how to eat food as medicine to reverse diabetes, to reverse heart disease. And that means eating things like potatoes and squash mm -hmm. and carrots and onions. But I know when I've worked with this uh, Squamish peoples in the, Mount, in the Mount Curry band, when I said potatoes are actually very nourishing from the body, many of the elders, many of the um, people who were 17 you know, to 45, they were like, we can't eat potatoes. We were told not to eat potatoes. And I said, but who told you not to eat potatoes? Because, you know, and I learned um, over my years of working with, um, with different bands that potatoes were actually, I mean, they're indigenous to the land. Like they grow everywhere across Canada, underneath the soil without having to plant them. And there was a potato harvest that took place every year in Mount Curry as well. And I learned this from, um, uh, uh, from Maxine Joe, who said, you know, we would walk through the mountains and we would harvest these little tiny nugget potatoes, not the big industrialized, like russet potatoes, but these little beautiful potatoes. And I was so sad to hear that, you know, and, and not just in indigenous communities, non-indigenous peoples as well have been told to not eat potatoes and not eat, you know, foods that are high on the glycemic index. Um, but and so I've been trying to undo that. And then when I saw your exhibit and I saw the history of how food was used as a weapon, food, like you said, Dr. Ian Mosby, he, you know, he's written a lot about how it was an experiment. Like it was like, how can we malnourish indigenous communities and how almost like how far can we go um, is what the Canadian government was doing. And that was the first time I had heard about that, actually. And that just took me down into, and I thought I knew a lot about what had happened. You know, it's something I had paid attention to from early on in school. I had a teacher that taught Indigenous studies in like grade two or three, and she spoke about it a lot. And it really landed with me as a child, like just that how 
sad and horrific. And, you know, how could our Canadian government do this where I knew other people in the class were like, yay, Columbus for, you know, going out there as an explorer, you know, like people, there was a different perspective that was taken, right? Like colonize the lands, that's a great thing. Or, you know, destroy the lives of all of these people who are indigenous to the land. And that's what landed with me. So, so that what your exhibit um, did something for me where it really just made me see when we talk about plants, when we talk about food, you know, we are using it medicinally every single day, but we're using it medicinally to also treat conditions as well. And, and both was happening simultaneously for millions of years amongst indigenous peoples. And this was the first time that I had actually seen this in, in, in books or exhibits. So I just wanted to acknowledge that and say, thank you for speaking about it from both, um, both sides. Um, the one question I have from you around this is, I know you say Indigenous people are so open to sharing the knowledge about food as medicine, about plants as medicinal, but is there a fear that you have um, that as this knowledge is shared more and more and more, that it'll just become a commodity to non-Indigenous people? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I should clarify my statement was Indigenous people are very willing to share their knowledge about food and harvesting with each other and not with non-Indigenous okay. people exactly because of that, yeah. because we've seen so much of our culture taken and appropriated mm -hmm. and non-Indigenous people kind of like making money and building kind of like their own lives up without sharing it back mm -hmm. with um, the indigenous communities so yeah and that's happening everywhere now even as psychedelics are being used in therapeutic practices um i see it happening and i see you know, you look at all these websites where people are using these plant medicines for spiritual healing um, and healing trauma, but they're they're not being used in um, necessarily shared. And it's very expensive as well to go to these retreats. You know, it's costly, but we're, you know, the trauma and not to denounce any trauma that any individual has. And I don't want to compare to you know, the trauma of having a bad relationship with your father or your mother to be this, you know, any different than the trauma, you know, an indigenous person faced when their child was taken from them and put into residential schools and starved and raped and killed, you know, like it's, uh, but at the same time that we are seeing the appropriation of plants, you know, these beautiful plants that have been indigenous to the land forever and now being commoditized for um, psychedelic, spiritual, um, psychotherapy practices. But again, what about all the individuals who are, uh, who are indefinitely traumatized as a result of colonization and the residential school system and, uh, you know, and, and everything over the last 500 years. So we know that that is happening. Um, it's happening with food as well and access to food as well. Um, you know, there's policies in place. Many of the interviewers in our series of um, these, these um, podcasts also talked about the policies that are in place that won't even allow certain communities in the United States to have a grocery store, but 
anybody can put in a fast food, you know, Kentucky fried chicken or a McDonald's, but not a whole foods. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, here in Canada, it's the same thing. We've got our own store, but often like it's a proper grocery store, but often you can't get a delivery of those healthy foods because they prioritize um, the regular grocery stores. So it's kind of like you go there and what's always available, pop and chips and candy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they won't, they don't prioritize all of that healthier food for us. They just like, okay, this, we know it's bad for them and we're going to make it super easy for them to get it. And yeah, and that's, I mean, it is happening everywhere and especially, um, you know, as you know, the one part that you mentioned as well, that I want to just go back to this because this was something new that has not come up in the previous interviews or it didn't land with me. So I shouldn't say it hasn't come up. Maybe I just didn't hear it or see it. But when you said we are part of the land and the land is part of us, that was huge because it made me realize that it wasn't just children that were taken away and separated from their families, but that, and I thought of it more before when I, like I knew indigenous people were disenfranchised from the land so that they weren't able to continue with their cultural practices of gathering and hunting. And that's a massive contributor to, um, you know, to not being able to access the food, which means you're malnourished, which then, like you said, leads to a whole host of chronic, chronic health conditions. But if you are connected to the land and the land is part of you, and then that's taken away from you, it's a massive spiritual loss as well. It's literally like your heart is being ripped out of you. Mm-hmm. Am I correct in saying that? Mm-hmm. Definitely. <clears throat> I've been a part of projects like, you know, with the um, ambassador pro- program at the Squamish Cultural Center, it really started out as an initiative, like how can we get the kids back onto the land and it was a Squamish Nation project um, because a lot of their territory well not a lot I guess a lot of their territory in the city is that's where the majority of their population lives is in North Vancouver Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the kids are having this really urban experience but they're not, they weren't connecting so much with the land. So they weren't having that opportunity to go out onto the land, uh, camping, you know, hunting, fishing, harvesting in a way where they could really connect with the territory. And so the idea was, how can we get our youth back out onto the land? How can we get our and just exploring more and more possibilities of how we can kind of like make this program to get the kids onto the land a sustainable program so that it doesn't stop just after one cohort. And so when they found the balance of um, working with the public and engaging with non Skohomish people about the land. They found this balance that has been working really well 
because they could kind of like continue the funding over multiple multiple years and really focus on introducing um, our youth to our culture. So within that they do, we do drum making, weaving, um, carving. Uh, we talk to our elders and knowledge keepers and share all of those cultural um, sharing or yeah we have all of those opportunities for intergenerational kind of like relationships to build and form and so it all really came from like needing to reconnect our communities to the territory and i think as even as the Lutwat nation like up here in mount curry in the pemerton valley you know life has changed so much from when I was a child. Like, mm -hmm. honestly, Pemberton was a um, small, tiny little town um, where everybody knew everybody and, um, you know, everybody would keep an eye on everybody's kids to just being so urban and now do you even know who owns a store? Like we all had a relationship with the business owners. The business ownership mm -hmm. owners are a part of the community. And now that relationship, it doesn't really exist because most of the time business owners don't even live in the town. They're, you know, working, they have their business, they live somewhere else. Um, so even up here, it's starting to be really difficult. Like, even though we're considered to be more remote or more rural, it's still, we're still having a hard time, like getting our kids onto the land and comfortable on the land. Um, you know, social media, the internet is really beneficial, but in, you know, a lot of ways it really, disconnects the children from being outside. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that, that, you know, when you grow up and everybody in your, you know, we're in a tiny town, the village of Pemberton here and, you know, Mount Curry is uh, further North, um, you know, by a few, just a few minutes. Um, and, and when you grow up, where every day the language is spoken that we are connected to the land, the land is connected to us. And so that is just part of you. Like it literally is part of your DNA. It's part of your soul. It's part of your everything. And then we have this, you know, five generations that are, you know, start to be disconnected from the land. And then there's the awareness um, of what happened. Um, and so then there's, programming put in place to can to teach connection to the land like can you teach that connection can we bring that back and are you seeing that is possible in this and I'll call it a wild urban environment where social media is so powerful it's so addictive where the foods are so addictive like the pop and the chips like the grocery stores here in Pemberton it's 
breaks my heart every time I see them because the front, well, the whole front window is just chips. That's how they advertise, you know, to get, and my kids are like wanting to go to the store every day and just buy chips and buy pop and, you know, and they know what I teach, right? We're always talking about, you need nourishment. You need that for all parts of your being. So can we teach connection to the land in this, in, you know, 2022? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can, um, but I think really it, um, the parents and the families need to support this at home. Like all of the work done in the schools is only really taken up by the children if their families continue it at home. So mm -hmm. I think everybody has that choice uh, within their own family. Are they gonna foster that relationship? Because I know, you know, kids come home and they talk about all of these really great things and they're really interested in it and really gung-ho but it really depends on the families fostering that relationship uh, for to really develop and really become long-term and then that brings me to another question that i have that you know we are being marketed to every single day that this food is healthy and this food is healthy. And oh, look, there's now apples that are being marketed as vegan and gluten-free. And, you know, it's so confusing for people. And, um, you know, and we've been so disconnected to what actual nourishment is that we think it comes in a box or a bag or a package and that it has to have like a stamp on it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when, you know, and I, see, and I do see this, we have, um, you know, people who, and this is not, just an indigenous community. This is all over the world where, you know, people feed their babies diet Coke and, you know, they think, well, that's okay. And, you know, people think that eating McDonald's or fried food is okay. And, you know, people think that, um, you know, that like the people just really don't have the knowledge across the board globally now, because all of us have been indoctrinated by the food industry to not understand what nourishment is and what nutrition is. And so one of the things that have come up, the comments that have come up is that our elders, um, indigenous people, the elders also, because it's been multiple generations. And now as they move on and transition and pass away, is that knowledge being lost? Or are there enough people who are maintaining the knowledge that food is medicine and that our forest and our lands provide us with everything that we need to stay healthy? Well, <clears throat> I think the answer is different for every single community. Um, and I think that answer is really tied to how much work each community is doing to protect and preserve their traditional language. Um, mm. Because a lot of that knowledge is kind of like stored in the language and that if the community is really working on preserving it and ensuring that their youth are learning it, then in learning the language, they're also learning a lot of valuable information of connecting with the land and connecting and kind of like knowing which foods are good and what foods are valuable. Um, and so I think, yeah, that answer is different for every mm. single community. 
kind of like everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's so funny that it's just like marketing everywhere, telling you that you need this stamp of approval to know which foods are healthy. And really it's what can you grow in your backyard or what's growing naturally are usually the foods that are the most healthy. Mm -hmm. And instead, usually we mow over them and put pesticides on them and we call them weeds and, you know, without realizing like the ant the cancer fighting properties or the, you know, diabetes fighting properties of all of those plants that, you know, we just toss away, but, and then go to the store to buy like romaine lettuce, which mm -hmm. is expensive, but doesn't even contain half the amount of nutrients that, you know, for example, you know, dandelion root and, um, you know, and, and. I mean, all of the greens um, that that are available, especially in Pemberton region, um, you know, we're it's one of the most fertile lands in all of the world. And it grows, it has such diversity of nutrients. And I know that most people don't realize that we are literally walking on our food um, every single day, the food that is really healing. Um, where do you think the, I want to talk about some of the opportunities that exist um, for Indigenous people, you know, not just, and I know we can't speak to all over the world, and we can't even speak to North America, and we can't even speak beyond, you know, the community where we are right now, but what are some of the opportunities that exist to potentially lower these rates of diabetes and heart disease? Like, where do, where do we start? because the numbers are not getting better, they're getting worse. Mm -hmm. I think really it's the availability or the willingness to eat traditional protein, like fish, sockeye, like we, we laugh here at my house because we really call ourselves sockeye salmon snobs like any other <laughs> fish is just like okay that's passable I'll eat that and then then we get to fish and we're like yeah I'm never eating that again <laughs> but it's like are just so like once you have sockeye salmon I mean everything mm -hmm. else is subpar but you know the availability the ability and willingness to eat the traditional proteins is huge like salmon is so healthy for us deer is so healthy for us trout there's a lot of trout and a lot of times especially with the fish like you can get it so easy and it's available for such a long time like salmon and coho all kind of fall and then trout in the springtime and spring salmon. And are you talking about store-bought salmon or are you talking like, about like wild? Fishing. Yeah. Right. Fish it. Okay. Um, and it's like so many people have the skills, they're interested in fishing, but we just need to bring back the idea like maybe now that you know chicken and beef is so expensive and the costs are just continuing to rise that more people will look to 
eating traditional protein or even just going out to gather some of the berries or like for my brother and I, we, that was like a main focus of our life every summer was to go out and pick berries and go and eat them. And that was just what we did. And we were getting like a lot of the vitamins that we needed because they tasted so delicious. But, you know, as children are conditioned to stay inside and watch TV and be on their devices and as our communities, Indigenous communities are open to more non-Indigenous people and we feel the threat to our children, we keep them kind of like confined to our yards that they don't have an experience of foraging um, and gathering in the same way that we did when we were younger. Uh, so it's just about fostering that relationship with like going out for a walk and eating things that you find along the way because a lot of that food is still really close to our communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. And that's a question that I, you know, often when we think about traditional foods, and it's often talked about first that um, it's about the protein, it's about the meat. And there's a beautiful documentary called Gather. Um, that I don't know if you've seen it. Have you watched Gather? Um, I've seen, yeah, I've seen maybe the first half. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, a beautiful documentary that really it's, it's, I think it mirrors your exhibit, the ancient medicines exhibit and really talking about, um, the foods that were introduced, um, into indigenous populations, you know, throughout the last 500 years. And it was like white flour, white sugar, um, white salt, basically, you know, and it was just like food that was devoid of all nutrients, but it also talked about the movement from eating a wild buffalo and bison um, and to eating industrial or late, uh, raised beef. And, you know, it showed that experiments have been done that the wild buffalo and bison didn't um, contribute to the, to diabetes the way that, you know, farm raised chicken and beef does. Um, but we, but often it's, mo you know, I hear often the first thing that people say is that it's about the protein, it's about the meat, it's about the salmon, it's about the hunting, but there was a rich gathering as well of the vegetables and the greens. And I saw in this one beautiful book that there was pit, it was describing pit cooking. And this book is so old and I can't even like the photos are photography must've just, you know, started, but it was beautiful because there was a pit um, that was created and it was layered with all of these wild squashes and, and turnips and root vegetables and carrots, like wild carrots and ginger and wild onions and potatoes. Um, and when I looked at the picture for me, I saw, I saw more gathering and mm -hmm. less meat, less of the animal-based protein. And I thought that was interesting as well, because when we look at a lot of indigenous cookbooks that are sold, um, you know, at, at, in the museums, you know, it really emphasizes the meat, the meat, the meat, and not as much of the, the foods that are harvested through gathering. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts on that was. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the, 
the protein aspect was because it was a lot of times the focus on community effort for protecting their rights, like um, for fishing, especially here in the Lutwet Nation, like we did a lot of work to ensure that we could, you know, keep fishing. And it's just like multiple times the government tried to take away the rights to fishing and that you preserve and protect it. But I think a lot of times the knowledge of gathering was really interrupted because the kids were taken away to residential school. And really you need, or it's more comfortable if you have a mentor teaching you like how to spot it in the wild or how to spot it and differentiate um, what could potentially be really dangerous or poisonous mm-hmm. for you. And so the comfortable the comfortability isn't there the same way, you know, if you catch a fish, pretty much you can eat that fish. Yeah. Like, yeah. And if you can catch a deer, you can eat it. But really like wild onions there's a plant that looks really similar to it here that is poisonous so Mm. you really have to know for certain that this is a wild onion and not the imposter and so I think you know as we become separated from the land that the comfort level of gathering the variety of root vegetables or greens that you can eat is gone down and down uh, from that separation and so we're left with only a couple of families that are have that comfort level Mm -hmm. um yeah and so it's just like we're in that rebuilding stage of knowing which foods like which plants are healthy for us. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you brought that up because that I hadn't really thought about it that way as well. And and I can see it when you talk about the rights that were taken away to hunting and fishing, but also that is the byproduct of non-Indigenous people over hunting, over fishing. So then policy has to come in, but then they blanket that policy across all individuals across the country. And then of course, um, you know, it, it reins, you know, like it's, it, I, like I see it so differently now to how policy plays such a huge role in shaping our history and the history, um, uh, of all people, but indigenous people as well, where that was just a way of being in a way of life. And all of a sudden now it's like, why does there have to be a policy in place for this? Because, you know, we know that indigenous people didn't over harvest, you know, they had with that connection to the land and to our environment, you know, you read, I've read about that everywhere. It's like, you don't take more than 50%, like all of these sustainability practices that are invented by white people have always been in place, um, you know, with it throughout indigenous cultures. Um, and that came from needing to live sustainably, needing to be in relationship to the land. But then also now hearing you say, yeah, of course, it is much harder to differentiate between 
two very similar plants and where one is poisonous and, and one is not, and where one is a potent medicine or one is a benign, you know, just nourishing medicine too. So, um, and are there a lot of, as, as there, there are language keepers and I just met a language keeper the other day. Um, and that's the work she's doing is to preserve the language, but is there also a lot of effort being put and where is that? And who is, I would say, leading that effort to also um, preserve the knowledge of the, the foods and the medicines within your community? Well, that's really interesting. Like our, I guess the person that was leading that effort passed away quite a few years ago mm. and so we taught a bunch of apprentices and so they've been building their relationship like strengthening their relationship as um, herbologists or building a relationship with food um, but as a community we haven't done a lot of work since he passed to ensure that more and more people learn it like um, mm. I guess a lot of the work is being done in our community school Hiklo community school um, with children in the immersion program the language immersion program a lot of their work is doing activities like going out to pick the foods and fishing um, <clears throat> and then learning the language around those um, activities. Um, so yeah, right now there's not any programs for adults. I think all of the programs are really focused on the children. Mm. Um, and which is so important because it's the children that are going to be around for, you know, a lot longer. And if they can start at a very young age to understand that, then that's hopefully, you know, if social media doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, grab them and take them away that um, they'll be able to. And as we know, kids, you know, often they'll learn it when they're young and then as teenagers, they move away, but then as adults and when they start having their own children and they want them to be healthy, then they, then they come back. I know my children are starting to come back full circle is they're in their later teens. Um, but yeah, it is a process. So we've talked a lot about, I mean, you've raised so many beautiful, important um, pieces that, that are so necessary, like a necessary part of this research. Is there anything else? What other things that, you know, this has only been 90 minutes and you researched for two years for that ancient medicines exhibit. And, you know, it's a lifetime of learning, but what are some other areas that are, that you see as big barriers to, um, to be able to achieve health? And when we say health, that is you know, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional health um, within your community and, and maybe generalizing more to other Indigenous communities? Mm-hmm. Well, I think a part, the biggest, a part of the exhibit that I didn't get to was the long-term effects of post-traumatic stress syndrome, mm-hmm. like being so affected by the long-term effects of famine um, and just knowing all of the trauma that happened in residential school and having it compare, like talking about the stress, like 
that brings a whole other level like mm. a lot of you know the social aspects that non-indigenous people are seen about indigenous people you know the domestic violence the alcoholism the drug abuse the gambling um it's all stemmed from the trauma that the children were living through and the self-medicating so we touched a little bit about the mental health but as you know a community community that's still struggling to address the mental health of our community um we still don't have the answer like a lot of times it's a culture but really how do you as i guess a society in whole that still has a stigma attached to mental health um how do we change that and just educate our community members that it's not a weakness mm-hmm. um i think that we're in that phase right now where we have to change the view onto mental health uh from being that you're broken there's something wrong with you to it's something that can happen to everybody mm-hmm. and at different points everybody struggles with it that it's okay to go and get some help to learn tools um to help you process the emotions like there's just so much grief in our communities of people like suicide is so high in an indigenous mm-hmm. community um that how do we help those families impacted by that because a lot of those issues kind of like so i think we're in that place right now where we really need to address the mental health emotional health of our communities to continue to move forward because it's all connected like we really indigenous people really believe that everything your mental health emotional intellectual physical it's all connected within the person and that if one area is impacted that your whole cycle of life or your whole being is impacted so you have to really address all four areas um to be healthy and so if we yeah so we have to take care of all all of the areas and i think there's a lot of work still needed with that mental and emotional health um that right now i just you know don't have the answers for of how we can do better mm-hmm. um, but i think society overall is still struggling to find those answers as well yeah definitely and 
the in speaking with Marie Mahalitz, and she's in the Dene uh, region, northern Saskatchewan, and she, you know, that's the work that she does. She works with the youth um, up there. They have some of the highest suicide rates in all of Canada in northern Indigenous Saskatchewan communities. And, but what she has found that has been really, really effective um, in is ceremonial healing. It has to be culturally appropriate. It can't. And what she's found is that continuously the Canadian government like flies in psychotherapists and psychologists and, and PTSD therapists, and they come in with the, I'll take it like say the Western approach to treating um, mental health and but it also lacks the spiritual healing component, which is also necessary. It also lacks the physical healing component, which is also necessary. And so it's only trying to take this like one phase approach that, okay, you're broken, we can fix you. And of course, a lot of that time it's, it's with, it's with drugs it's with, um, and which are appropriate when there's no other options. I get that. But at the same time, that's again, just that band-aid solution where you're not addressing the whole person. You're just thinking like it's all in the brain. Um, and it, then it's not working and the rates continue to go up. But when her, um, with her program, which is all about land-based healing, it's been incredible where, you know, people have gone from, and youth have gone from wanting to take their lives to being leaders in their community again. Um, and it's been quite beautiful to see the work that she's been doing there. But again, that's coming from within the community. She was raised in residential schools. She has seen what's happened. She has asked what is needed. And then they're working together to, um, to do this work collectively. But it is, it's, um, it's an important, I probably, I would say, you know, I never say want to say one thing is more important than another, but when somebody is grieving inside, you know, if we don't address that, then, you know, what is the point in eating healthy or what is the point in um, seeking other, you know, other ways to heal yourself physically, you know, if, if spiritually and, and mentally we are so hurt as a result of our histories, our collective histories. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, do you have any, even though I know you say that right now there are, you don't have the answer to that. Do you have a sense of how that healing can take place and can start? Mm, yeah, I think possibly encouraging people to go out and do gathering, hunting and gathering, get some out onto the land, which, you know, has had a lot of positive results from and encouraging people more giving them the opportunity to celebrate celebrate being um indigenous mm -hmm. also really helps so just you know really focusing on rebuilding or maintaining the community aspect of that um, could be really helpful mm. And I love that you said that, um, giving people the opportunity to celebrate being Indigenous. It's um, for me, and I know this, I don't know if this is going to be correct or politically correct, and I don't want to step on any toes, but I know for myself is that um, I have felt lost most of my life because I, and I didn't know why, 
at all. And I have now come to understand it through doing this research. It's because I was literally taken from the land where I was born and brought to Canada. And none of this resonated with my my DNA, my, you know, what I think has been passed down through us, through the generations. And it was all foreign to me. And it was through going back home in 2018 and even just being in the plane and looking over the land, I literally felt like my whole body, I just cried in the plane and I couldn't understand what was happening. And it was seeing the rolling brown hills and it was seeing, um, you know, the river. And it was, But I hadn't been back since when I was four. I couldn't remember anything. And then when I smelt the soil, when I touched the skin of my family, you know, in this tiny village where I'm from, there's no electricity, there's no running water, but everybody my grandmother knew when the rain was coming right down to that minute. She knew if it was going to be a good growing season and then to see how they were cooking and the foods that they were eating. And it was so delicious. Um, and I felt I was home for the very first time. And that is where I think my healing started. And I realized um, that I had to hang on to that, you know, my, my ancestry. And, and I wanted to learn more about where I came from and through that you know, I felt a peace for the first time in my life. So I can only just begin to imagine what that is like um, for Indigenous people of Canada to to reconnect to that feeling again. Um, so celebrate being Indigenous, I think is also really important because for so long, I was actually jealous that I was not Indigenous to Canada. And I would see the knowledge that um, indigenous peoples had, and they knew that they knew the medicine that was in the forest. And, you know, they had this long, beautiful history of living together and supporting each other and raising their children together and having grandmothers. I never had access to my grandmothers and grand, I didn't have any grandfathers and I felt a loss there. And so seeing that, so yes, um, I know I celebrate you and I celebrate all of that knowledge that is contained within you and the way that uh, Indigenous peoples have lived for years and years. And um, I really do hope that um, Indigenous people all over the world are able to somehow connect to that again, because I see that as the first step in healing for sure, for sure. Mm -hmm. Any tips for people People are going to be hearing this. I know for myself, I was there. You cried when you were conducting that tour because you talked about how in learning all of this, there was the grief and just learning about it for the, you know, everything that you learned in that two years of research. And I know for many people that are hearing this show for the first time and all the interviews that we've done, it's, this is the first time they're hearing these things, um, the history, the stories the atrocities that were conducted um, as people read books written by Indigenous peoples and they hear firsthand those stories. There is, I know for myself, every time I read a book, it my heart aches like deeply um, and it's hard to process those emotions. Um, so what tips do you have for people who are learning this for the first time? And, you know, you know that many people are fixers in our country. They want to provide a solution and they want to do something and they want to take action. But what would you say is the first thing that they should do when they learn um, this for the first time? I guess just remember 
or acknowledge the fact that Indigenous people are very resilient in that we managed to keep all of the knowledge um, and everything that was that the government was trying to take away from us. So the government wasn't a hundred percent successful because uh, we're still here. We still speak our language and we know all of this. Um, but I guess one of the tips is uh, if they wanted to help, but they didn't know how, they could support Indigenous entrepreneurs mm. uh, in purchasing some of their products or going to visit cultural centers um, in just also realizing that to look for authentic uh, businesses or authentic companies to support. And they can do that by looking to see if the person acknowledges the community that they're from, they acknowledge the family that they're from, um, and they have that personal connection. Because unfortunately we are in a time of appropriation where a lot of people are claiming to have Indigenous ancestry, but they aren't going that second step. Like when we did our introductions, you can introduce my traditional name and I'm from this nation. And then I could tell you which family I'm from, like in Indigenous communities, that's often how you do it is like, I would say, oh, my mom is Chuli and my dad is Lex and, you know, just really introduce who your grandparents are um, because it's that ability or, or that idea of finding connections, like finding a way and finding your relatives and just having that connection in, um, you know, that's a, an idea that's used by Indigenous people from many different areas is we really have those relationships built in and we value those relationships. So we would always try to find a way to connect with people in that in one way of supporting Indigenous people and supporting um, moving forward is also the idea of supporting us to have economic autonomy because mm -hmm. you know a lot of our economy is really tied to the government and the government has you know very clear boundaries and very clear definitions of what we can use that funding for and just knowing that that funding is really based on numbers that were the number of our population in the late 1800s or the population in the early 1900s um, in that we had a population growth and that doesn't reflect or support the communities as they are now. And also to know and acknowledge that even though we have reserves, the reserve, the land 
isn't in our name, so we can't get a mortgage and we can't leverage that to the way that non-Indigenous people can. So it's not like an asset in the bank's eyes mm -hmm. um, so that the economic opportunities just aren't there for Indigenous people because you can't get a mortgage and to get a car, to get a vehicle, um, it just costs so much more because we can't get a mortgage. And so that economic autonomy is just so much harder for us than it is for non-Indigenous people. Um, in that Indigenous people, we can't, it's not, you can't just not be non-Indigenous. It's that idea of like, if you're born Indigenous, then you're Indigenous. You can never like have the same ability to the financial stability that non-Indigenous people don't have, that building that intergenerational wealth is just right now seems like so foreign and so unattainable for mm -hmm. us and that yeah it's just like supporting us in that way or supporting like the ability to have clean water which you know is really difficult across the country yeah mm -hmm. And so those are ways that you can help um, as somebody that has no like personal connections to Indigenous people and that building relationships is really key like to do more work with Indigenous people, you really have to build those relationships first mm -hmm. and approach the idea of working together or working with Indigenous people um, yeah. No, I'm glad that you brought that up because we are still in, and I know I'm, I have done it before, you know, and I know a lot more now after, um, you know, reading books and having to take trainings and having to recognize that, you know, it's, we're, we're not here to come in with a solution and go into indigenous communities or any communities across the world and say, you know, we know better and we have the answer. And so let us do it for you. It has to really come from the ground up is where always, um, and build those relationships. And I think that's hard for anybody who's not indigenous, because I think we're born and raised to be like, I'll go in and fix the problem. And to that we, you know, it's important to, to, stop seeing everything as a problem because it's not a problem. I mean, this is the life that we are in right now. This is the way that it is. And we have to acknowledge that and we have to accept that. And then from there, um, we say, how do we, you know, what can I do? That's probably an important question to ask, or can I help or can you know, we do something together as opposed to, you know, I'm going to come in with the answer. And I know that has been one of the biggest downfalls, you know, of our society is thinking that that's the way it has to be done. And it, it, if anybody is out there doing that right now, please reach out to me and, um, 
and and even to you, Allison, to say, you know, how can we do this? Um, because if there is a collective healing that needs to take place, um, and I think it first starts by by asking questions and, like you said, building those relationships. Um, quickly coming back, I know we've been together. Is it okay that we just take a couple more minutes to talk about water? Mm-hmm. Because you touched on that, can you speak a little bit more? to what you meant by clean water. I have a feeling I know what you mean, but I know that most people across Canada have no idea what you're talking about when you mention that. Mm-hmm. Well, currently there's, including a part of um, the Luat Nation that doesn't have a supply of clean drinking water, that their water is deemed, you know, unhealthy for them to consume. And so currently the Litwat Nation is working really hard to deliver clean water to one of our, um, I guess when I should start by saying that a lot of times reserves are really small and that the land is separated into small plots of kind of like the most unfarmable land in your territory. Um, So when the country was getting set up, they really sold all of the most farmable lands to immigrants because that's how you can entice them to move from their country and take a chance on somewhere new. And so we're stuck in the flood zone or right up in the mountains where you know, we can't, you have to work so hard to get anything to grow. But on one area, the infrastructure is so bad that they can't even drink the water and they have to uh, transport it in. And so that idea is not limited to one area, but in a lot of different reserves across Canada that they don't have the infrastructure to support clean water coming out of their taps in their own homes. And they don't have the ability or to provide that infrastructure, again, because the limitations of economic activity within their own community and that the government, you know, when they set up the country, they took that fiduciary responsibility for Indigenous people. But often, you know, they're looking for loopholes or looking for ways to get out of that. And what's really suffered is the ability to have clean water in your own community. Um, In the Indigenous communities, even though you know, we have these companies coming in and buying our water from the government for pennies. The government has sold the rights to our clean water and forcing us to buy it back from the stores for ridiculous rates that, you know, it's our water. Why are you selling it only to sell it back to us? And you're not even like revenue sharing, any of that, Mm -hmm. like, 
I believe there is a class action court case um, underway from Indigenous communities to the Canadian government um, around having clean water. Yeah, we'll put the links to that so people have information to that and they understand that there are boil there in that has been for decades and decades, you know, um, boil water uh, advisories continuously throughout remote and rural communities where often that is where indigenous people live and so not having access to drinking water is also you know one of the first and foremost things that are needed um, to also continue to start to continue the healing um, the healing that is necessary so healing you know from PTSD healing from, you know, water being taken away, healing from food being taken away, healing from everything, um, everything that has happened in the last 500 years. I mean, there are so many areas, but it just highlights that this is, there's no one solution. This is systemic, a systemic, um, we have to have that systemic lens where, you know, as we do this work together, um, yeah, we have to consider the whole. Everything is interconnected, like you said. Um, there's there's not one path, there's not one way, there's not one right way. And that even amongst different communities, there's many different ways to to um to start that healing and to continue that healing. Allison, if there's anything that we missed at all, I invite you to call me. We can talk on the phone. If there's additional pieces, you're like, oh my goodness, this is super important that that gets included in this research. Um, this is collectively our research that we've co-created to share with others so that other people can start their learning journey as well or continue it. So please call me. Um, I would love to include that. Um, and if you would like to do another podcast as well, um, outside this research, um, I'll be submitting my dissertation in December. I invite you to let me know um, what topics that you would like to dive deeper into. And I would love to have you back on our show to continue sharing your wisdom with, um, with everyone out there that is wanting and willing to listen to um, these very, very important, um, very important and poignant pieces. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show, Allison. Okay, thank you, Nicole.